The first reading from 1 Peter, the fourth and fifth chapters. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 17th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. I'd like to read the last verse that Pastor Angfer read from the gospel and two more from John chapter 17. Key word here is glory. Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name 
those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And again Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And thirdly, he prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You may be seated. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we're making a transition here. We have celebrated the ascension of Jesus. I talked about the ascension in our chapel service with the children on Thursday, pointed out the necessity of Jesus moving on to do the will of the Father, to be at the right hand of the Lord and to uh, rule over all things for the sake of his church and to rule and to lead within this church through now the work of the Holy Spirit. But today I especially want to focus on this 17th chapter. This is Jesus' prayer on Thursday night, Monday Thursday, before he was about to die on the cross. And so again, as we celebrate Easter, we're kind of making a flashback as Jesus prepared these disciples and for all of us to understand what this was all about and its ongoing significance. Now, uh, this word glory is a word that we use sometimes even today in our English language, but I found a dictionary, interestingly, that showed since the 1700s um, how this word and its usage in our language has been dropping and declining. You know, for example, we had a wedding here yesterday, and we might say that that wedding is amazing, we might say it's beautiful, uh, but I think we all kind of hesitate a little bit to call these things that we are part of on this earth as glorious. That just seems like a little bit too much. But we don't have any problem using that word when it comes to the things of God. I don't think any of us would have any hesitancy saying, heaven is glorious. So let's see how we are part of the glory of God, past, present, and future, as we read about it in the Bible, and particularly John 17. This is your homework for this afternoon. Go back and read that entire chapter. This chapter uses the word glory more than any other passage in the Bible. The first time it appears in the Bible is in the ministry of Joseph. And Joseph is describing to his brothers God's amazing yeah, and beautiful and certainly glorious uplifting. How, how Joseph was saved from, first from slavery and then from prison and now to the right hand of Pharaoh. And there's the kind of reflection uh, of what would come later when Jesus would be raised from prison, from suffering and death, to the right hand, not of Pharaoh, but of, to the Lord himself. The word appears a lot in the ministry of Moses as the Lord makes himself present with his people. Again, leading them out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness to unite them together as his people. They would be his people. He would be their God. And it would be marked and manifested by the glory of the Lord, which appeared in this shining pillar of fire by night and cloud by, by day. Sadly, Israel went through many years and centuries of decline and unfaithfulness. And we also read in the Bible of how 
the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And a woman gave birth to a son, and she named her son Ichabod. Ichabod means inglorious. And she said she named her son that way because the glory had departed from Israel. That ark was eventually returned under the ministry and reign of King David. And when Solomon built the first temple and the ark was brought to that temple, again we see another part of the Bible that uses that word glory over and over again. Psalm 24 in particular, David says, Lift up your head, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We sing that psalm a lot in the season of Advent. Why? Because we're thinking about God's glory coming to us in the birth of Christ when the shepherds sang, or when the angels sang to the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night, glory to God in the highest. And now also we see Jesus bringing us back again to that theme of glory in the 17th chapter of John. Let's take a look at that a little bit more closely. Isn't it ironic that the chapter which speaks the most about the glory of God is, is also the chapter that, that occurs just before the darkness, the ugliness, the pain, and the suffering of Jesus. In every way, both spiritual and physical, his betrayal by his friends and closest disciples, his unjust trial that he went through, and, of course, the punishment and suffering of crucifixion itself. And yet, in all of this, Jesus says to us, his glory is being manifested. Glory manifested in that Jesus was fulfilling the will of God. Jesus was doing what God had called him to do, to bring salvation to us. It is also a reminder to us that whatever our outward circumstances might be at any point in our lives, no matter how dark and ugly and difficult things may be for us, we may be facing death or sickness, relationship troubles, temptation, depression, failure. But it doesn't mean that we are without the glory of God. The glory of God is always being manifested where His Word is heard and believed and lived. That's what brings us to this great prayer. We often call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Remember, we all always think about the work of Jesus in terms of a prophet and a priest and a king. It helps us to get the full scope of all that he has done and is doing for us today. As a prophet, he preached, of course, but as God's preachers today go forth into the world, that prophetic ministry continues. Jesus is a priest as well, of course, sacrifice for our sins. But even today, he stresses, and the Bible stresses, he is at the right hand of God now interceding for us. Think of that. Jesus praying for you and praying for your success and victory in faith. The first thing in that prayer Jesus mentions is that we would be one as he and the Father are one. 
That is an important thing to think about. Evil is constantly dividing, disrupting the good order of things that God has created, beginning with our first parents who were divided from God, separated from the garden, began to experience division between themselves, division within their family. And that division continues as we read through the book of Genesis, as people become fighting and violent and angry and hateful toward one another until we arrive to the flood itself. This is the history of our world, a history of division and unhappiness and bitterness. But Jesus prays for oneness, a oneness with God and a oneness with one another. But how? Jesus mentions, through your name, through your name is the way we get this oneness. Whenever you hear in the Bible about the name of God, like praying in the name of Jesus, always remember that that means we are praying along with all the words that follow from that name. All the things Jesus taught us, all the things that he has given to us. In the second commandment, God said, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God. Yet, sadly, this is what the first, one of the first great temptations of the devil is for all of us. I can't tell you how many times I've sat and listened to the sad, sad stories of people's lives and how much trouble they're in. And the one thing, the first and simplest thing that they could do that would make a great difference, maybe not all the difference, but a great difference would simply be to come to church regularly and to hear the word of the Lord, to remember the name of the Lord, to keep the Sabbath rest. It isn't the only thing that people need. It doesn't mean that all our problems will go away, but I've never seen life's problems solved ultimately without that the hallowing of God's name the oneness that comes when we come together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit there's the glory of God on earth secondly Jesus prays now we're moving on past the gospel lesson by the way this 17th chapter we break it up Every Easter on this Sunday, every seventh Sunday of Easter, we read from this chapter. Today we read from the first part, next year we'll read from the middle, and finally the third year from now we'll read the last part of this chapter. But as we move along in the chapter, Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. A few weeks ago in our eighth grade catechism class, the question came up, Pastor, should Christians date non-Christians? And that raised a very, very interesting discussion that went on for a couple of days. And that has to do with our relationship both with God, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and with the world that we live in. Jesus says in that prayer that it is not God's will for us that we would completely separate ourselves 
from every other unbeliever. And the reason for that is obvious. We, as Paul says to the Corinthians, are Christ's epistles. We are the letters. We are the ones who bring Christ into the world. And if anyone is still to be converted and baptized and brought into God's kingdom, it is going to happen through Christians. Uh, The word, the name Christopher means Christ-bearer. And that's exactly what we are. And so we need to be in the world, but also not of the world. And what's the difference? The difference here is that it's good for us to be in the world. It's good for us, indeed good for us, to have non-Christian friends. As long as we are rubbing off on them and that they are not rubbing off on us. So the answer to the question, can Christians date non-Christians, would be yes, as long as you're rubbing off on them and they are not rubbing off on you. When it comes to marriage itself, Paul does stress that we should not be unequally yoked. And so we would want to take great care in that relationship of all. But the bottom line is to know that God will keep us from this evil one. And that doesn't mean that we are separated from evil. It also doesn't mean that we won't be touched by evil sometimes. It means that we won't be dominated by it or destroyed by it. But we will be in it and we will feel its wounds and its troubles from time to time. When David prayed Psalm 23, he did not pray that the Good Shepherd would lead us around the valley of the shadow of death, but through the valley of the shadow of death. Many times people misunderstand the glory of the Lord, thinking that glory means we're always going to be physically comfortable and physically happy in everything that's going on, but that's not, certainly not the case. But rather, even as Jesus could manifest the glory of the Lord in his own crucifixion. So also, as Peter says in our first lesson this morning, we too manifest the glory of God as we endure suffering faithfully and realizing God's victory over evil, even in our own lives, always, hopefully, rubbing off on a good way in the world around us. So he prays for oneness in the name, He prays that we would be kept from evil. Thirdly, Jesus prays for our glory when he says in John 17, 17. This is an easy biblical address to remember. 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. We really need this in our world today. As we began uh, the evil world is constantly being divided and separated and destroyed. And the real source of all of that is lies, fakery, fraud, and hypocrisy. Jesus called the devil the father of lies. And this is exactly what we see going on around us all of the time. Politicians lie with impunity as long as they can get 51% of the vote. They don't care. Our country spends $300 billion every year in its court system and and justice, criminal justice system. Why? 
because people hold fast to their lies as long as they possibly can. Worst of all of this is that we too are tempted to join in and to be part of this. It's just so common, it seems as though this is the thing we must do. But Christians are taught otherwise. Taught to remember and know that as much as the world around us lies and everything is fraudulent and uh, cannot be believed, there is truth in this world. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. This is our response when the world tells us things like the universe is an accident. The Bible is not God's word. All religions lead to the same goal. There's no life after death. Being good, that's what gets you to heaven. Or everything's okay as long as you're not hurting someone. Or truth is whatever you want it to be. These are lies that are simply counted with that great address, 1717. Thy word, thy word is truth. And though millions of people around us would tell us otherwise, and that they would raise their voices in a great shout in all of their false confidence and hypocrisy, Jesus' words are the words that still stand. Thy word is truth. And this is what Christ wants us to hold to. And this is what will lead us to that ultimate glory of eternal life with God. Next Sunday, we begin the Pentecost season. And we will remember this transition in the ministry of God's grace in this world. From a time when Jesus literally walked the earth in humility, allowed people to argue with him and hurt him, torture him, destroy him on the cross until we reach his state of exaltation in which now he sends, as he calls it in John 16, the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. This too is a beautiful promise that we hold fast to and we will continue to think about and talk about all summer and next fall We see the ministry of Christ working through this ministry of the church on earth. Knowing that all along the way in all of our lives and in the life of the church itself, it is Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father praying constantly for our oneness, for our being kept from the evil one, and for our being sanctified, made holy by his word of truth. If he prays this prayer for us, all the more for us to pray it fervently and faithfully ourselves. Amen. Please rise.